Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from France, Myanmar, the UK, the United States, and a see you in hell, which uh, I'm very sorry to say is actually about a living person. Uh, he's not dead yet. I'm going to start in France, where violence erupted at a rally to support the candidacy of Eric Zemmour. Uh, Zemmour is a uh, far-right political figure in France who I've talked about in previous weeks. If you're from the United States, sort of think about him as a cross between Tucker Carlson and Roger Stone. You know, he's an old right-wing figure, but is primarily famous as being a media person. This rally in favor of Zemmour's candidacy had outbreaks of violence between supporters of Zemmour uh, and counter-protesters, all of which also were confronted by the police. At least one person was arrested for having lightly injured Zimor. This person was a counter-protester. And it's also interesting to note that Zimor is not actually doing particularly well in polls for the French presidency. He is currently actually polling behind the National Front candidate, Marie Le Pen. Moving on to Myanmar, a trial in that country has found its former president, Aung San Suu Kyi, guilty of various charges, primary among them breaking COVID restrictions. This was, in fact, a show trial held by the military government that took Myanmar earlier this year, back in February. She faces several decades in jail, potentially, for the accumulation of charges that she is facing. This after her having been in jail for decades prior under Myanmar's previous military government. Obviously, this trial is not actually about the laws that she broke, and it's even actually possible that she did break some of these laws, um, particularly those involving corruption. However, the purpose of the trial wasn't to bring her to justice, it's rather to remove her from the public world and potentially to neutralize her as a political figure until her death. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is actually relatively old at this point, and so it's possible that she could die Uh, while in military custody without them having to execute her. Moving to Britain, Britain has released a new policy, uh, that is the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom has released a new policy that would enable it to strip millions of British citizens, uh, approximately five to six million people, of their citizenship. Now, this is not a particularly new power, in Britain. Uh, The Parliament has had the capacity to strip British citizens of their citizenship for quite some time. And after September 11th, these powers were expanded and actually used in some capacities. Primarily, they were used against people who held dual citizenship with the United Kingdom and another country. And specifically, these powers are usable for people who sought UK citizenship after being a foreign-born national. And this uh, status primarily applies to people who were born in colonies or former colonies of the United Kingdom and who immigrated there in order to, you know, find a better life as immigrants in the United Kingdom. What's specifically new about this rule is that it enables the Home Secretary to take a person's citizenship and then not tell them. Uh, They are enabled to take someone's citizenship if it is, quote, in the public interest, And if it is also, quote, in the public interest, not to tell them that they are no longer a citizen of the United Kingdom, they don't have to tell them. This means that, arguably, 
if the Home Secretary can claim that it is in the public interest, that is, is if it is in the interests of the state of the United Kingdom, then they can take someone's citizenship, leave them completely stateless, and not tell them anything at all. Uh, this applies to millions of nationalized, naturalized citizens. Um, it is supposedly directed at potential or actual terrorists, um, but of course it could be used to enforce any kind of political position that the Home Secretary thought it wanted to enforce. Moving to some international news uh, about a United States company, Twitter. Uh, Twitter has been suspending accounts of Antifa investigators and other left-wing journalists. Uh, this is coming from the Washington Post. It is part of a new system that Twitter implemented last week. Uh, supposedly, the, the, the purpose of the system was to protect people from having their personal photos shared on Twitter. Uh, this was, well, the, the purpose of this was to prevent stalking and to prevent uh, sexual and gender harassment. Extremely good goals. However, it also meant that right-wing figures uh, and right-wing accounts were able to mass report uh, left-wing journalists and Antifa figures for having photos of right-wing people online and for sharing them. Uh, this uh, also included people who were simply sharing photos of people in public spaces, even during big public rallies. Uh, but these people were targeted for a lot of, you know, uh, mass harassment online and also mass reporting by a bunch of right-wing, not just bots, but like, you know, real right-wing accounts. And this resulted in the suspension of a lot of left-wing journalists and uh, Antifa journalists and, you know, people who dedicate their lives to documenting the right wing online, uh, which uh, as a person who tries to disseminate information about the right wing on the internet, I am extremely grateful to the work that those people do. Uh, Twitter is currently reviewing this reporting process because it was uh, so clearly weaponized by the right wing against the left. Further about the right wing in the United States, there was a major Patriot Front rally in D.C., this weekend on Sunday. This is coming from MSNBC. Over 100 protesters uh, of the Patriot Front were seen in D.C. marching on the National Mall. Uh, they were wearing white masks. They were wearing uniforms, uh, primarily consisting of khaki pants and sort of like military-style caps. They were also carrying shields and American flags and chanting things about, you know, how the United States needed to restore or repair itself or how they needed to regain power in the United States. Patriot Front is a rename of a previous organization uh, that emerged during the early years of the post-Trump alt-right. This previous organization was called Vanguard America, uh, but they changed their name after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally because uh, the person who murdered uh, one of the activists there with his car was a member of Vanguard America. What's been interesting about this Patriot Front rally is that because it is so clearly fascistic and so clearly indebted to the aesthetics of, well, not just the Nazi party, but also the Ku Klux Klan, a lot of right-wing figures have been denouncing it or claiming that they have absolutely no idea who these people are or what they're doing. Uh, this is obviously not true. Uh, they're very familiar with this organization because they've been on the scene for quite some time. Further on the extreme right in the United States, 
Chester Dulles, a member of the KKK and also a former leader of the neo-Nazi organization, the National Alliance, is running for county board in Georgia. Specifically, he is running in his home county, Lumpkin County. Now, Dulles thinks that he can win as a GOP candidate and a pro-Trump candidate, and it's, you know, it's entirely possible that he will. However, the question is whether or not even voters in such an extremely conservative part of the United States would be willing to overlook his, I mean, not just like right wing, but like actually neo-Nazi past. Like the National Alliance is not one of these like, you know, Groyper neo-alt-right things that sort of like talks about fascism and talks about white supremacy in a sort of like supposedly tongue-in-cheek way. This is not like a meme joke right-wing thing. The National Alliance was a neo-Nazi organization. Uh, and of course, the KKK uh, needs very little introduction uh, to those of you listening to this podcast. The real question is, what degree of contact does he still have with those entities, although he has formally distanced himself from them? And what would he do if he actually held office in this part of the country? Like, you know, how would his politics play out? And finally, closing out the news segment of uh, 15 Minutes of Fascism with my regular update on the January 6th coup. I told you this news will never stop. Uh, we have news from, uh, I'm getting it from Reuters, but, but it's, it's everywhere. Uh, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff of Donald Trump, is no longer going to be cooperating with the January 6th Select Committee investigating the attempted coup on January 6th. This is a reversal of his previous position, which I have talked about in previous episodes. Uh, originally, he was saying that he was going to actually work with the committee, uh, which could have been a really big deal, right? You know, he could have named names, given evidence, uh, possibly gotten some sort of deal in order to protect him from criminal prosecution. Uh, but now he's saying that he's not going to work with Congress, and he now faces contempt of Congress charges for refusing their subpoena. Uh, he faces these charges along with Steve Bannon, uh, another former Trump chief of staff and also just like general strategist and architect of Trump's 2016 campaign. Uh, another staffer for Trump who faces these charges is a guy named Jeffrey Clark, uh, who is a former Department of Justice official who was the primary author and advocate of the memo that Trump was sharing around his office, which was, you know, it was it was a memo about like how could Trump legally justify the coup. Uh, this was the memo that planned how it would have been possible for Vice President Mike Pence to legally prevent the acceptance of Joe Biden's electoral college votes in the United States Congress and therefore prevent him from becoming the president. Now, Mark Meadows joining these other two people uh, is really interesting. Uh, it could mean a lot of things uh, in the investigation about January 6th. It could mean that he was threatened by the Trump administration or by Trump's allies. It could mean that he had an earnest change of heart. Uh, it could also mean that his initial claim that he was going to work with the committee was just another one of these big delay tactics uh, that Trump and his allies have really been engaging in, really digging in their heels on this process, specifically because they're hoping that in November of 2022, the Republicans will be able to retake the House and which would mean that in January 2023, when the new Congress takes office, the House Select Committee would be dissolved and the investigation would be called off. We really just don't know uh, exactly what this means. This is an unfolding story. And unfortunately, 
the stringing along of the news on this is precisely what Trump and his allies want. They want this to take an extremely long time and to actually get very deep in legal weeds and they get really boring uh, so people don't pay attention to it and think about how, you know, the president attempted to stage a coup last year. Continuing on with news about the alt-right and their connections to Donald Trump, uh, Devin Nunes uh, has quit his position as a member of Congress. He previously represented a district in California, and he is now going to be CEO of Trump's new media company. Again, I'm getting this from NPR, but it's, it's everywhere in the news. He's resigning from an extremely influential place in the House, uh, which is relatively unusual uh, because, as I said previously, he would probably benefit from the Republicans retaking the House in November of this year. However, another factor here is that his district is being redistricted, so it's possible he would face a, a tougher battle in re-election. Still, uh, he is getting in on the ground floor uh, of Trump's new media company, which is called the Trump Media and Technology Group. Uh, it has a holding company as well, uh, and it's also trying to found a new social network called Truth Social. Uh, uh, this really could be nothing, or it could be a whole lot. Uh, it could be the origins of a massive right-wing propaganda system, or it could be a colossal failure. Nunes has always been a Trump insider, uh, and so his position here is going to be really interesting. Finally, closing out the episode, as I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history, except that I'm sorry to inform you that this week we're actually talking about a living fascist. Uh, this guy, his name is Michael Townley. He is alive and was born this week in history, December 5th, 1942. Townley is famous as a U.S.-born operative of the DINA, uh, which is the secret police of Chile under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. He was born in 1942 in Iowa and moved to Chile at 15 for his father's job and went back and forth throughout his adult life, uh, having some contact with anti-Castro exiles in Miami during one of his stints in the United States. He finally fully returned to Chile, at least in loyalty, after the 1973 coup, where he was finally, after many attempts, recruited by the Dina as a bilingual operative of theirs. Uh, at the Dina, he was primarily involved in organizing military-style assassinations. Uh, he was part of the team that assassinated General Prats, uh, whose resignation uh, from the leadership of the Chilean military in 1973 paved the way for Pinochet's leadership of the army. Uh, Prats was in exile in Argentina in 1974 when Townley killed him. Townley was also involved in several other assassinations and attempted assassinations in Europe and elsewhere, and he was finally convicted for an assassination which he successfully carried out in the United States. This assassination targeted Orlando Letelier, who was a former cabinet member for Allende, the democratically elected socialist president of Chile prior to the Pinochet military dictatorship. Uh, Letelier was killed in a car bomb uh, set by Townley and several other people working for the Dina that Townley had recruited, and was assassinated not in Chile, uh, but in Sheridan Circle, uh, like the roundabout, in Washington, D.C., uh, where Letelier had been living for several years, uh, trying to advocate against the Pinochet dictatorship. Townley was successfully extradited from Chile and tried in the United States uh, and convicted to 62 months of service. Uh, 
he was only convicted to that much because he was a witness and talked about uh, a bunch of other crimes and uh, later got witness protection, uh, which is presumably where he is now. Now, I guess it's possible that he's died, uh, but we don't know. He has alleged roles in other political assassinations carried out by the Pinochet government or alleged assassinations carried out by the Pinochet government, most notably that of Pablo Neruda, who, who died shortly after the Pinochet coup in mysterious circumstances. So, whether you're alive or dead, Michael Townley, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please share it with friends, family, and comrades. If you want to reach me, you can reach me at hist of the right, that's H-I-S-T of the right, at Twitter, or you can contact me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. If you really enjoyed my podcast, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. All right, I will talk to you next week. Bye.